0: Welcome to Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. I'm Charlotte Johann
1: and I'm Maxwell Jones
0: and today we are talking to Avi Lifshitz. Avi is an Associate Professor of European History at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of Magdalen College before moving to Oxford. He spent 10 years at University College London, and he has held a number of research fellowships in Germany and the US, including the Wissenschaftskolleg Berlin and the Clark Library at the University of California, Los Angeles. He was this year's Quentin Skinner Fellow at CRASH, the Interdisciplinary Research Center of the University of Cambridge. Thank you, Avi, for being here.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. We
1: always begin with the same question on this podcast, when and how did you become interested in intellectual history?
2: surprisingly this is uh, relatively easy for me to answer it all goes back to my study at a special interdisciplinary program at tel aviv university in israel uh, which was structured somehow like the old german magister degree in the sense that it was directed towards uh, an ma directly rather than a ba but it was more flexible in allowing students to take any module from any faculty and we had to maintain a certain balance between the humanities, the social sciences, and the natural sciences. This uh, special path, the Adil Lautmann Programme for Fostering Excellence, provided an opportunity to tackle specific topics from a range of academic disciplines, which was a revelation for me. The program was founded by Yehuda Elkana, the distinguished physicist turned historian of science, who was also the founder of an institute for the history and philosophy of science at Tel Aviv and the first rector of the Central European University in Budapest. So I believe it is his vision that allowed me and many fellow students to develop a set of academic interests across different fields. There were, of course, other scholars who promoted intellectual history there, among them the late Amos Funkenstein, who unfortunately passed away shortly before I began my studies. But his students were there to continue the tradition, and I was very grateful to them, as I am to my teachers elsewhere.
0: So you studied in Israel before you completed your DPhil at Oxford and since then you've worked at a number of institutions in Germany and the US, as well as in Britain, you've most recently returned to Oxford as Associate Professor of European History. Throughout your career you've been interested in cross-cultural transfer and the history of universities and academies. What influence do you think your experience of different academic systems has had on your work and your outlook?
2: Well, these days we usually see academia as much more internationalized than it had ever been. Um, in the humanities, however, I'm not sure this is always the case especially in Germany and in France, alongside a drive for greater internationalization, there is, I think, a pushback against this trend, usually crystallized around the increasing pressure to publish in English. Uh, Although I work in Anglophone academia, I do appreciate structural and stylistic diversity. And I think that excellent research in the humanities can assume uh, different forms and should not necessarily Conform to the same template. So that comes to say that not necessarily everything we do in the Anglophone world uh, is the right way, so to speak, of doing things. On the other hand, we do need to communicate freely and there will always be an international language of academic exchange. So I don't know if this is a proper answer to uh, your question. Of course, different institutions across the globe do things in different ways, and my time at such institutions abroad taught me to respect local traditions of research and its dissemination in different languages. It also made me much more humble and circumspect about the advantages and disadvantages of anglophone academia. But I'm not sure whether this experience had a direct impact on the topics of my research. From the outset, I think I've been interested in different ways of discussing similar issues across uh, national or linguistic boundaries. To a certain extent, this is what intellectual history is about. I find it problematic to limit ourselves to views on a specific subject at a particular place without being aware of uh, what was said, read and written elsewhere on the same topic at the same time. So we must be able to contextualize ideas within local circumstances, but we should also take note of alternative ways to conceptualize the same issues elsewhere.
1: So following on from that, you've written widely about German and French intellectual history in the 18th century. We've had some discussion of... Enlightenment or the Enlightenment on this podcast. John Robertson has talked about Enlightenment in Scotland and Naples. Uh, Felix Waldman came on to discuss Enlightenment in Italy. Can you tell us about the French and German cases? Is there anything distinctive about them? And to what extent do you think it makes sense to think about Enlightenments in national categories?
2: Well, I I stand behind what I mentioned earlier, that intellectual historians should be able to compare ideas in transnational and transcultural, translinguistic ways, if only because the subjects of our study, the authors uh, we work on, did not usually limit themselves to reading works in a single language or to exchanging letters only with their compatriots, of course. Nevertheless, there is much that is distinctive about the Enlightenment in what uh, Roy Porter and Mikula Steich called its national contexts. I would even go further and argue that the proper context for the study of the Enlightenment is urban and regional rather than national, if only because most of the modern nation-states simply did not exist in the 18th century. In Germany, for example, a striking feature is the different shades and colors assumed by the intellectual debates in different locations. At a small town of Göttingen, for example, one of the major centers of Enlightenment debates in Germany, Uh, the discussions were strongly molded by practices at the local university, as well as by the larger Hanoverian and British contexts. In Berlin, by contrast, there was no university in the 18th century, which actually allowed for the growth of a genuinely diverse range of debating societies, salons, and other venues beyond the Royal Academy of Sciences. Then again, major intellectuals in both locations exchange letters with one another, reporting about recent developments, sharing information uh, on colleagues and events further afield. This example shows that we can hold on to the notion of a cross-European Enlightenment, tackling similar questions from different perspectives and providing different answers. To do so, we must realize that the Parisian Enlightenment was not necessarily a one-size-fits-all model. On the contrary, we know now that on many fronts the Parisian Enlightenment was an unrepresentative exception within the landscape of European Enlightenment debates.
0: You've written about Isaiah Berlin and his famous theory of enlightenment versus counter-enlightenment, in which you look at Berlin's readings of Friedrich Meinecke and Ernst Cassirer. Why do you think we keep coming back to engage with these mid-20th century debates when we try to think about the 18th century? Are they uh, just a useful baseline to argue against?
2: Because we do not live in the 18th century and have no immediate access to it, it is only inevitable that our vision of what happened at that time would be transmitted through the spectacles of the scholars whose work we have read and engaged with as part of our training This means that we have to contextualize their work, too, and understand what sort of image of the studied period they provided us with and why. And this is what I try to do in my work on Berlin, and by tracing his notion of the Enlightenment, where it came from, and so on. I suppose, and actually hope, that future generations will approach our own work with a pinch of salt, trying to see how it differed from studies by our 20th century predecessors, and from the work of our successors, and I'm sure you will be among them.
1: So you wrote your PhD dissertation, which then became your first book on German debates about language in the second half of the 18th century. Can you tell us what the significance of language was in the Enlightenment context?
2: Language was, of course, a major topic of debate in the 18th century, and uh, it is not only thinkers like Rousseau and Herder who wrote essays on the origin of language, but very many others, for example, economists and political scientists, uh, theologians, all wrote essays about the origin of language. and. I have suggested that in the 18th century a new theory of language replaced an older one which uh, saw language merely as an instrument of communication or the delivery of ideas. So the older theory assumed that we form full notions in our mind with no need for language before conveying them, those ideas, to others by means of language. Many 18th century authors realized, on the contrary, that without language and signs, we could not form ideas at all. Language came to be seen not only as a communicative tool, but rather as a mental device enabling all of human thinking, our entire mental operations. Now, if this is the case, and if you would like to trace the progress of the human mind throughout history, what you need to do is really to examine how language first emerged and then evolved in history. And this is what uh, many 18th century authors actually try to do in their essays on the topic.
0: So a central theme that emerges in the book is the concern of 18th century thinkers with the origins of human society. Why did this question of origins receive so much scholarly attention in this period? And do you have a position on what happened to this theme once we move beyond the Enlightenment debates and into the 19th and 20th centuries?
2: This question is very closely linked to the former one. Uh, The evolution of the human mind and human thinking was inextricably linked to that of language, as I have suggested. As uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau tells us at the beginning of his essay on the origin of inequality, if you want to find out the origin of inequality, you cannot do that without looking into the evolution of human society as a whole or into the origins of society. So in many different fields, 18th century authors wrote essays on the origins of something, as you uh, rightly suggested, be it uh, religious worship, uh, economic relations, political structures, the human mind, the arts and the sciences, and so on. This was, as I argue in my book, their way to conceptualize the transition from the natural to the artificial. Or from the bestial initial condition of human beings to the man-made self-organized complex world of the 18th century. We all know that from treatises about the origins of political authority, right? The transition from a state of nature to, um, let's say a sovereign power maintaining, uh, security and, uh, the law. But if you think about it, treatises on the origin of language trace really a very similar transition from arbitrariness and, uh, let's say naturalness in the use, uh, in the use of language or in the use of cries and gestures, all the way to a system of convention in the use of agreed signs. 19th century critics ridicule the attempts of their predecessors to investigate unknowable origins or departure points from which or about which we can have no reliable sources whatsoever. But Enlightenment authors were not so naive and simplistic as 19th century thinkers sometimes presented them. They never argued that one could reconstruct the actual origins of the phenomena they examined. On the contrary, they explicitly claimed that they were engaged in thought experiments, starting with the given or the present condition of a certain phenomenon. They selected the most probable starting point, theoretical starting point, in order to trace the potential course of evolution between the two. So. This was really a heuristic device. Enlightenment authors did not so much want to recover the genuine origins of the phenomena they wrote about, but rather to explain their current operational structure. For them, such an explanation usually had to be projected backwards in time, again in a probabilistic manner, according to the latest scientific theories, And never in the naive belief that we could actually reconstruct the point zero, so to speak, of social relations, language, or anything else.
1: So your latest book, Rethinking Lessing's Laucon, Antiquity, Enlightenment, and the Limits of Painting and Poetry, co-edited with Michael Squire, focuses on Lessing's theories in what we would now call aesthetics, which were hugely influential in the late 18th century and beyond. Why were the debates on aesthetics so important in the late enlightenment and how does it affect us today?
2: Aesthetics was in the 18th century part and parcel of debates on the operations of the human mind, which we have just mentioned. But we have to bear in mind that aesthetics in the 18th century was not a theory of the arts as we used to refer to the term these days. In the 18th century, it was a theory of sensual perception. This is how the first writers on aesthetics actually used the term. So the main idea in the works of the Leibnizian pioneers of aesthetics, such as Baumgarten or Mendelssohn, was was to investigate how our sensual perception works, anything involving the processing of uh, sense data, that is most of our knowledge, everything that doesn't amount to mental deduction like mathematics. There was a very tight link to language as well, Because if language or the manipulation of signs in the mind was necessary for the formation of human ideas, it also played a pivotal role in the transformation of sense data into mental notions, which we can use and tweak further on. And indeed, Lessing's Laucon is not only a reflection on different artistic media, it also contains a very interesting theory of language cast exactly in the terms I discussed earlier, the natural, the artificial, the arbitrary, and so on.
0: So another theme that comes up in the book is antiquity, something which also emerges in your work on Rousseau. So could you talk a little bit about the different ways in which 18th century thinkers thought about antiquity and how it informed their worldviews?
2: This is, of course, a huge topic, and many monographs and collective volumes have been published on the quarrel of the ancients and the moderns at the beginning of the 18th century, for example, and on the role of antiquity in philosophical, historical, literary works in the Enlightenment, as well as, of course, in 18th century architecture and the plastic arts, the notion of uh, neoclassicism and so on. This is not necessarily an obvious point, because after all, the Enlightenment is often equated with a straightforward rupture in Western thought uh, when all forms of knowledge were established on a radically new foundation. But this Cartesian view is not, of course, the whole picture, even though it proved uh, very influential in Enlightenment studies, uh, especially in the early 20th century. In the 1960s and 1970s, for example, there was a very fascinating exchange between Peter Gay and Franco Venturi on this issue. So Peter Gay saw antiquity as a fundamental background, perhaps the main instrument of 18th century thought. Venturi, who was interested in political reforms, argued that the experience of the surviving republics in Europe was much more important than any sense of classical republicanism before the French Revolution. Research over the last few decades has moved on, of course. We now recognize just how significant classical antiquity was in the forging of many new ideas, political, scientific, and artistic in the 18th century. Dan Edelstein has recently emphasized this point in his Genealogy of the Enlightenment, and I try to contribute to this uh, discussion in the book Rethinking Lessing, Laucon, and also in a special issue I've edited for the journal History of Political Thought on the engagement of Jean-Jacques Rousseau with antiquity. It is called Rousseau's Imagined Antiquity, published in 2016.
1: You gave this year's Quentin Skinner lecture on philosophy and political agency in the writings of Frederick II of Prussia, a subject that poses an interesting methodological puzzle. Political historians have traditionally cast Frederick's philosophical writings as a public campaign that served his political purposes. Intellectual historians are accustomed to regard philosophers as participants in an intellectual debate with no hidden agendas, how do you think we can and should study a thinker who is also a powerful political
2: agent? As you say, historians have usually been perplexed by what they saw as the huge gap between the principles Frederick seemed to espouse, which initially look very idealistic and almost impossibly virtuous, and on the other hand, his political action, which they regarded as highly opportunistic following only reason of state principles. And this tension is, is clearly present, for example, in Friedrich Meinecke's work on Frederick within his book on Machiavellism or Staatsreson in the original German. So this led many to see Frederick either as a self-conflicted, contradictory person who constantly wavered between two poles of attraction or as a dissimulating master of public relations using the philosophical works as masks to conceal his actual designs. I believe we need not necessarily resort to psychological speculations, but also that we should take seriously his activity as a published author of philosophical works. Because if all there is to them is public relations, the actual content or the ways of argumentation might be regarded as negligible as they have been regarded by past historians. In my Quentin Skinner lecture here in Cambridge, I have argued for the legitimacy of seeing Frederick's writings as a more or less consistent corpus of argument, which he employed in different manners and in changing circumstances. So his works were uh, not merely a melange of contradictory utterances written only for the sake of immediate political benefits, as has recently been suggested. Indeed, there is a significant continuity in his use of specific arguments throughout his career as an author, even if the context of their deployment are, of course, very different. So we can trace such continuity and treat Frederick seriously as a philosophical author if we first keep in mind the need of every author to appeal to a common philosophical vocabulary. One can make the case for a certain view or a certain argument only in so many ways which have, of course, to be comprehensible to one's audience. Secondly, we must take into account the constraints that any public utterance of philosophical principles places upon an author. As I tried to show, Frederick welcomed in his writings such public constraints on his activity both as author and as king. Even if he was not sincere in doing so, contemporaries did think that he was doing something very different from other rulers, and this perception in itself was a very significant political phenomenon. I try to demonstrate this point by looking at the use that public intellectuals made of Frederick's own writing when they wished to hold him to account.
1: And to follow up, other major thinkers such as Edmund Burke or John Locke also had significant political careers. The scholarship, on the whole, has taken their works quite seriously, while Frederick's have been dismissed as motivated by realpolitik. Why do you think that is? And. Is a ruler necessarily more disingenuous than a politician?
2: Well, uh, this is a very good question, and I'm no expert on Locor and Burke, but it seems that in both cases it is easier somewhat to link their political philosophy to their political activity. This is especially the case of Edmund Burke, who wrote most of his political works in the context of his activity as a politician. Frederick's case is very different. It was usually below the dignity of an hereditary king to expose himself to criticism in the public sphere or to the sort of questions that we are discussing now, and were actually already raised at the time, so Frederick was widely accused of hypocrisy when he invaded Silesia just a few months after publishing the Anti-Machiavel. It is interesting that this early and very bitter experience did not lead him to abandon writing and publishing. So unlike Locke and Burke, Frederick was seen as the rare sort of author who could actually have realized many of the principles he espoused in his works through his activity as a ruler. And this was, I think, why major philosophers actually bothered to correspond with him over very long decades. In a sense, it is Frederick's unique position as king and published author that led to historians' interest in his writings almost only as explanatory tools for his political action. And if the philosophical works could not play this role, and they usually cannot, they were seen merely as epiphenomenal or irrelevant to Frederick's political activities.
0: So we always close with the same question for every speaker. What is your current research project?
2: First of all, I must finalize my edition of Frederick the Great's uh, Philosophical Writings, translated by Angela Scholar for Princeton University Press. I very much hope that it will be published towards the end of 2019. And in parallel, I'm also working on a new project on the science of man and animal in the European Enlightenment. And there is already a forthcoming journal article about elephants. So there's something to look forward to i hope
0: wonderful thank you avi for coming to talk to us
2: thank you very much for your time
0: Thank you all for listening to interventions the intellectual history podcast you can find us on twitter and the ih podcast if you want to support us please rate the podcast on itunes it helps other people find us and we'll see you very soon